The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. not be cold enough while I preach. I'm not even going to be sweating this morning. It's going to be fantastic. But I hope, I hope that you are doing well this morning. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to grab them and open with me to Romans chapter 14 this morning. Um, listen, we started, uh, as we started into chapter 14 last week, uh, we approached something really, really important. And if, if you remember last week, I, I said this, but um, I really believe that this is one of the most important things that we as Christians are just not talking about. So last week, as we looked at chapter 14, we were talking about and looking at the Christian conscience. What is the Christian conscience? And, and so last week, without going into huge detail, I'll keep it real surface here because I want to dive into our text this morning. But we looked at the first six verses, and Paul puts before us some issues in the church, but they're not issues like slander or you know sexual immorality or quarreling, stealing. They're none of those. He does that in previous texts, but not here. Here it's different. Here it wasn't as much issues of sin as it, were, as it was issues of conscience within this church and congregation. And um, we covered a lot of ground last week. I want to invite you definitely, if you missed last week, as we kind of started into chapter 14, I want to invite you to take a listen on that. We, we kind of laid some foundation, but as we, as we look at that high level, these first six verses... Paul gives us two examples. One is the Christian diet, and two is the Christian view of holidays, as we saw in this ancient Roman church. And in both of these situations, you have one brother or sister who is on this side who believes this, and others who believe this. And there was a difference in opinions over these, over these things. So the question was, what do we do? What do we do in the church when there is a difference over an issue of conscience? What on earth are we supposed to do? Well, we saw uh, a few things that I want to pull out before we get to our text. The first thing that we saw last week is right in verse 1, he says, welcome. Welcome each other. Welcome each other. Um, treat each other with respect, grace, love, while choosing, he says, not to quarrel over opinions. That we're supposed to welcome each other, not despise one another. And I love this verbiage. Because even though we are all under the same pavilion this morning, it is quite, there's a huge difference between the heart that despises each other because we're different and the heart that welcomes. And Paul says here, we are to be a people that welcomes each other. That was the first thing. The second thing we saw in verses three and four, that we're not to judge each other over issues of conscience. We're not to judge each other. Now, are we to preach and teach Scripture? Are we to hold to Scripture? Are we to stand on it? Are we to call out what is he? Yes, 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 yes. 
But again, in our context, what are we looking at? We're not looking at issues of sin, murder, stealing. We're not looking at those things. We are looking, church, at issues of the conscience. And so what are we to do when one person believes that they, sh- they should not eat meat and, and, and they believe that they should not eat meat in, because they want to honor the Lord when other Christians do not believe that? What do we do when one brother or sister believes that we need to set apart a certain day as a way to honor the Lord while others do not? That is what we're talking about here, issues of conscience within the church. And Paul says, when we have differences in the church, we welcome them and we do not judge them. That means that it's not our job to be the conscience police. Uh, Do you know what I mean when I I say when I say that? Uh, It's not your job to walk around and make sure that everyone else has the proper conscience. Might be tempting to do that, but no one wants it. And uh, that position's not available. God's not hiring for that position. Neither is Stone of Bible Church. Our responsibility is not to go out and try to convert our brothers and sisters so that they see everything the same way we see them. It's not our job. It's not our role on issues of conscience. Now, can we have good God-honoring conversations, robust conversations about issues of conscience? Absolutely. This isn't taboo, unspeakable things. But in all of it, we are to love our God and love our neighbor more than we love our opinions and preferences. We are to love our God, we are to love our neighbor more than we should want to change our neighbor so that they see things the same way we do. That's what's on display here. So Paul reminds us, welcome them, don't quarrel over opinions, don't judge them over issues of conscience. And then verse six, he lifts our eyes up. Do you remember this? And he says, everything, all of it, our chief task is to honor God in all things. And so the one who eats meat And the one who does not, the one who celebrates that day and the one who does not, all of it we do to honor the Lord, all of it. And so what that means is that in all things, we check our own heart and we ask ourselves, Lord, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I choosing not to eat meat? To use Paul's example, am I doing it to honor the Lord? It's kind of a call for us to reflect on our own heart. But more than that, and I think even much more difficult than that, is on a certain level, this is a call to trust each other. What I mean by that is is that Paul is calling us to trust that our brother and sister is searching their heart in the same way. And so on a certain level, Paul is calling us to give grace, the benefit of the doubt, to assume that when our brother and sister is different than us, that they are different as unto the Lord. That becomes much more difficult. But in, a, in the church, we need to trust each other. And so let me return to Paul's example. There may be a, a, a person sitting next to you. Again, we'll get to this, but... There might be someone sitting next to you to use Paul's example that doesn't eat meat. And he's doing that from a place of conviction in his conscience and his obedience to his conscience is for him worship. So we must trust each other as the family of God. That, that 
it's not for us to look at them and say, brother, you're worshiping the wrong way. Like, that's crazy that you would do that. God hasn't called you to do that and us try to change the way that they are worshiping. It might be true that you don't worship the Lord in that way, but we need to trust each other that our brothers and sisters are doing it as unto the Lord. We looked at this last week, and then finally, we had this reminder in verse four. Who is the master? Who are we going to stand before? Who are you gonna stand before? Who am I gonna stand before? Who are they gonna stand before? And, and Paul reminds us that the Lord is the master and that one day we will stand before him. That was the first six verses. And as we look today, we gotta, we gotta acknowledge that issues of conscience can be so messy and difficult at times, that our diversity can be so difficult at times. But again, it is our calling. And this morning, we're going to take one more painful step into the waters of conviction a little bit here. Um, Or maybe it's just me. But I want to remind us of the principle that we talked about at the very end of our time last week. And this is going to lay the foundation for us as we get into verse 7 of Romans 14. In Christian community, the call is not for the weaker brother to have to violate their conscience in order to join or foster community with those that are different than them. In fact, church, the call is the opposite. The call in Christian community, the call for the church is for the stronger brother to lay down his preferences and and, and in order to do community with those who are different from them. That is the call. So going back to the meat example, I'll get off of this one, I promise. It's just Paul's example. But going back to the meat example, we see Paul, Paul's, the call is not for the brother who abstains from eating meat to have to violate his conscience and, and, and scarf down the steak in order to do life with people who are different. That's not the call. The call is the opposite. It's the one who eats meat to lay down his personal right and preference to enjoy that steak in order to foster community with those vegetarians. Okay? That's the call. It's it's a call for the stronger to lay down. And this is where our text is going to take us this morning. And and, and, and we're going to talk specifically about conscience again. But we are going to specifically target something this morning, and it's the idea of entitlement. Entitlement. Entitlement, briefly, is defined as the belief that one is inherently deserving of something. It's this belief that I have the right to something. And so this is entitlement. And in in a community of mixed brothers and sisters, who think and view things differently than you do, have mixed issues of conscience, it is so often our sense of entitlement, our sense of entitlement that gets offended. That gets offended when we talk about issues of conscience. 
To use Paul's same example here, this is probably the last time I'm going to bring up the meat, so just follow with me here. One brother feels conviction not to eat meat as their way of worship, right? We talked about that. What can easily happen to the other brother in this situation? Well, the big, nasty head and sense of entitlement can go pop right up. And what that means is the other brother might have this feeling of saying, well, I have every right to eat meat. I enjoy eating meat. So you know what? When they come over for dinner, I'm still going to grill. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to enjoy it. I have every right to eat that filet. And they can stick to their green beans. Entitlement. But you know what's actually more honest in this situation? What more likely is going to happen? Well, you know, I enjoy eating meat, so I'm just not going to invite them over anymore. That's what normally happens. In fact, in fact, I might need to find another church that has like community grill outs. I need to find my people because I deserve it. I have every right to it. And those vegetarians can go find their own people. That's what most likely happens. That church's entitlement popping up. Our sense of entitlement can often provide us with the excuse that we're looking for to form holy huddles around our preferences. Our sense of entitlement can give us the excuse that we have been looking for to form these nasty, I said holy, unholy huddles around our own preferences, to elevate our own preferences and opinions over the love of our brother who sees something differently than we do. I gotta say, our God is not pleased by those kind of huddles. He never has been. So much of the New Testament is written to show us this, to show us how to do life together. And, and I never want us here at, the, at Stone Oak to be that kind of, of holy, unholy huddle. See, last week we talked about, as Christians, as the church, how should we think about the Christian conscience? This week, though, we're going to continue that but I want to ask, how should you, how should I, how should we think about entitlement? How should we think about entitlement as the church? Again, this is probably going to sting. Did for me. And this leads us so beautifully into verse 7. And in fact, I want to read 7, 8, and 9 um, together. Uh, says this, for, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died again or died and lived again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. 
Church, let's lay out a foundation for us this morning. What I'm going to, what we're going to look at is all built on this one foundation here. And I, I, want to, I want to just call it out from the beginning. You are not your own. You are not your own. Paul says, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, he says, whether you live, whether you die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. That means you belong to him. And you are not your own. This is so important. Because so much of the difficulty that we have with this sense of entitlement, so much of the difficulty that we have, it comes from a misplaced sense of ownership. In other words, when you believe that your life belongs to you, when it's all about you getting yours and getting happy and getting what you deserve, when you look at others, when you look at your church and you believe, you know, all of this is somehow about me, what can I get out of it? When you believe that this is all about me and what can it do for me because this is my life and it belongs to me, when you believe that church, you are entitled and you cannot help it. You can't help it. But what happens when we believe and know what happens when we understand that we belong to him? What happens when we believe and when we understand and we know that all we have belongs to him, that we have a very good, very good and perfect master? What happens? Well, what happens is our driving sense of entitlement just loses its footing. It loses its footing. When he is the master, when he is the owner, we sang this this morning, when he is the Lord, when he is the Lord, all of that entitlement and control that we have on issues of conscience gets pulled way back, way back in this community. And I I want you to think about something. There is only one person who has ever lived in all of history. There is only one person who has had every right to be entitled. There is only one person who had the right to walk into any room, into any group of people, and to loudly proclaim, all of this is about me. There's only one person who has had every right to be entitled in every way, and that was Jesus Christ. Only one who had every right to entitlement. But as we look at Jesus, this is the crazy thing. We see what is absolutely unbelievable, unthinkable. We can't even wrap our minds around it. We see Jesus putting down his entitlement, put on flesh, to do the will of the Father and to save you. He lays it down. I think about Philippians 2, where where Paul says, you know, have the mind of Jesus, 
who though he, he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. And how did he empty himself? Paul says, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Church, he didn't empty himself of his godness. He didn't stop being God. What did he do? He emptied himself of all that he was entitled to as God. In order to put on flesh, in order to dwell among us, he gave his life for us. That's what Paul is saying here. And in verse 8, he says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what this verse is telling us? This is Jesus, fully God, laying down, laying aside his fully justified sense of entitlement. All of the rights and the privileges of being God, to humble himself for others, to serve others, to be obedient to the will of the Father. We look to Jesus and we see what the selfless sacrifice of entitlement looks like. In fact, I want us to look at our text again in verse 14 in light of this. So our, our text says, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. I am reminded this morning that for Christ did not live to himself. For Christ did not die to himself. As Christ lived, he lived to the Father. As Christ died, he died to the will of the Father. I am reminded of Jesus' words in John 6. It says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus did not come to this earth, born of a virgin, um, lived his life in a way that he could just get all that he deserved, in a way that is centered on him being you know, successful and to live for some selfish existence. And by the way, he very much deserved to do that. He had every right to that. The creator has every right over his creation. That, that's his justified entitlement. But what we see in Jesus is that Jesus willingly humbled himself. He willingly emptied himself. I wasn't going to do this. I, I think we have time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to read us something this morning. Um, there's a scene that comes to my mind that is absolutely incredible, and it's in the final moments before Jesus is arrested, before his crucifixion and death. And in this scene, in this moment of honest pain, we just see Jesus' full humanity on display. It's so relatable, and it's so raw every time I think about this and read this scene. It comes at the end of, of Matthew. Um, in Matthew 26, you have Jesus going to a place that is called Gethsemane to pray, and he tells his disciples, sit here while I do that. Sit here while, while, I, while I pray. And in, in verse 37, he, he says he began to feel sorrowful and troubled, Jesus began to feel that. And he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And so Jesus goes a little bit further. He falls on his face saying, Father, if it is possible to let this cup pass from me, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying, I cannot bear this weight. I am sorrowful as unto death, he says. My sorrow is so heavy, I feel like death. I cannot bear it. I want this to pass. I can run for the hills. I can hide. I can make nice with Rome. Or better yet, I can call down angels and just boom, crush this whole thing. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is a powerful moment. And humorous, because he comes back, and after this moment, his disciples are dead asleep. And um, he rebukes them, and he says, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's such a relatable, have you been there moment. Um, But then I, I noticed this. For a second time, it says in verse 42, for a second time he went and prayed. And do you know what he prayed the second time? Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Have you ever in your desperation and pain prayed the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? So did Jesus. And it wasn't just that because he came back after this and they're dead asleep again. Um, And it says in this fleeting way in verse 44, he left for a third time. And the text says again, saying the same, praying the same words again. Again and again, Jesus is bringing himself to the Father. And as he comes back again in verse 45, he says, see, the hour is at hand. It's time. And in verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. This is Jesus saying here through the pain and through the sorrow, the heaviness of this moment. Let's go. I'm being crushed under this weight. Let's go. At times, I think that I can start to believe that Jesus was not really fully human. I think at times I can start to believe that he was like Superman, where he looks like a human, yes, but underneath he's just this ragingly strong alien. But the Bible does not allow me to think of my Savior that way. The Bible teaches me that he was, yes, fully God. But the Bible teaches us, church, that he was fully man. And in this moment, in this darkest moment of all of history, was right upon us. We see the full humanity of our Savior. We see it all. And you know what I also see? I see this. I see that Christ didn't live to himself. On the brink of his death, he didn't die to himself. He lived to the Father. He died, not my will, but yours be done, to the will of the Father. In church, if Jesus had every right to claim entitlement, every single right to claim entitlement. If, if Jesus laid himself down, I, I have to ask you, who are you? Who do you think you are? 
What right do I have to walk in entitlement? Who are you to elevate your sense of entitlement over your brother, over your sister? Who are you to elevate your sense of entitlement over your love for your brother? Who are you to love that steak or your right to eat that steak more than your brother and sister? I mean, in light of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, who are we to live like that? Since Jesus emptied himself, who are we to refuse to do the same? On what ground does my sense of entitlement stand? What ground does it have to stand on? Jesus died for you and called you to take up your cross and follow him. He sacrificed his life for you. Are you willing to sacrifice your entitlement in this life for them? Christ didn't live to himself. Christ didn't die to himself. For as Christ lived, he lived to the Father. As Christ died, he died to the will of the Father. And because that is true, Paul looks at us, says to us at Stone Oak Bible Church, for none of us, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether you and I live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Jesus did not elevate his sense of entitlement. He laid himself down. So now who am I? Who are you that we would allow entitlement over our preferences to divide his body? I'm reminded that Jesus laid himself down for the weak. I know myself and I am among the weakest. And if Jesus laid down himself for me, I should be the first to lay down myself for them, for others. And I want to bring this out because, listen, for us today, our sense of entitlement is not going to be the same as it was for the ancient church in the city of Rome. Um, religious dietary codes probably isn't going to be the thing. Observance of religious holidays probably isn't going to be the same thing, uh, same for us. But in the church, we do the same thing. We have our, our, our issues of entitlement over issues of conscience. Last week, I picked on Christian music. I'm not going to do that again, all right? Um, I'm going to give Christian music a little bit of a break. Um, but there are so many other examples, church. And in fact, as I thought about this, you know the two biggest areas that I personally come to my mind? Actually, two big buckets that I'm going to give you where our sense of entitlement just pops up its nasty little head. The two buckets that come to my mind are your time and your money. The two buckets that come to my mind, it's my time, it's my precious time, it's my schedule, or it's my money, my precious resources, my budget. And what right does my brother and sister have 
to make demands on my time, on my money. What right do they have to tell me what to do with my schedule or my budget? See, our sense of entitlement can often get in the way of our generosity. And, and, and what, I mean, what I mean is, I think we've all been in this place, maybe, where someone, a brother or a sister in our life is starting to require a lot of our time. It's my time. I gotta protect my time, my money, my space. Or I'm going to give you my time, my money, my space, but, but here's the thing. I'm going to give you on my terms. And you know what? In this moment, um, in moments like this, we can so easily identify the heart problem that we have. It's an ownership problem. It's an entitlement problem. We've bought in the, into the lie that I'm a true owner and I'm not. Um, you are not. You are the Lord's, as it says here. We are the Lord's. And and, and what that makes you is not an owner. It makes you a steward. What that means is that you're not the master. You serve the master. And what that means, because of this, we don't live to ourselves. Christian, our end Our chief purpose, our chief end is Jesus, not you and yours. You belong to him. Your time belongs to him. Your resources belong to him. And we are called to follow him with all of it, to be like him, and to lay it down for them. I'm reminded of of verse 9 that says, For to this end Christ lived and died again, that he might be both the Lord, or Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Church, Jesus lived his life, just as we read in the Gospels. He gave his life, crucified, arrested, beaten, mocked, whipped, suffered, bled, breathed his last. It is finished. He did all of that, placed in a tomb. Three days, his body laid there until the third day when he rose. Conquered death, hell, and the grave appeared to hundreds before he ascended. And why did he do that? Paul says, for it is to this end that Christ died and lived again. Christ did all of that to a specific end. And what was that end? Why did he do that? Well, Paul tells us that he, that is Jesus in verse nine, might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. The end The end of it all is the fact that Jesus is Lord. The owner, the master, the Lord, this is Jesus, the one who laid down his entitlement and gave himself for the weak, conquered it all, and he is Lord. I've referenced Philippians 2, where Paul says again, have this mind, be like Jesus, um, who, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. Um, he, he, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, that's what Jesus did for you. But do you remember what the next verse says? You remember what the next verse says? And it says, therefore, 
Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess. And what will we confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We said this at the beginning, but so much of our problem with entitlement, the difficulty that we have comes from this misplaced sense of ownership and misplaced sense of who is Lord. And what Paul is driving us to see here is so simple, and yet, church, it changes everything, and it's simply that Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as the church if Christ is Lord? In all of our diversity, with the strong brothers and sisters and the weak brothers and sisters and everything in between, what does it mean? Well, it means that our chief question is, is, is actually pretty simple. With all the things, with all of the people, with, with, with everything we have, the question is this. How can you bring honor to him in, a way, in the way that you treat them? How can you bring honor to him in the way that you treat them? How can you best use what God has given you to treat the people sitting around you well? Because listen, all of it, it's not ultimately yours. And so how can we use everything for him? When we ask this question, church, all of that sense of raging entitlement that you might feel, it just cannot stand. It fades and we can start to love our neighbor more than our preferences and our stuff and our entitlements. In other words, you can start to act more like Jesus. You can start to look more like him who loved you enough to empty himself. You can start to look like him. I want to finish this morning with um, a text from, from John 13 where in Jesus' words where he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That means, hey, did you read Philippians 2? That's the kind of love I'm talking about. Just as I have loved you, it's that emptying of my self-love. You are to love one another with that same love. And then he says, by this, by that emptying each other love that we have for each other, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is our call together. This is our distinguishing mark as the church. Jesus says the community that we see and we hear around us right now, they're going to know that we belong to Jesus because of the way we love each other with an emptying love, the way Jesus loved us. 
And what happens is, is, is that entitlement gives way to the love that we have for our neighbor. 